I think this is all a bunch of finance people who've only ever talked to other finance people. And that's why they think this is a good idea. When you come at it with what's the player value of doing this, talk to me then. That's when I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. We were talking about digital ownership. That's what we cared about. The fact that the provenance of having something always be yours and what that could unlock was why we were here. But it certainly wasn't why everybody else was here. Welcome back, everybody, to Building Better Games. Web3, you've heard of it. You've probably seen the fiery debates on social media about it. So have we. Perhaps it triggers you. Perhaps it excites you. Maybe both. What does it really mean for games? How do we as leaders keep an open mind about what's coming while not losing focus on player value? A lot of the conversation we've seen online, frankly, hasn't been very productive. We want to change that right now. We are going to be diving into Web3 in two distinct parts, and this will come out as two different podcasts. In the first episode, we will be talking about player value and Web3. What does it mean for Web3 to meaningfully contribute to the value players get? We're also going to touch a little bit on this whole debate and how it can be frustrated and heated and what's going wrong and right about that. In part two, we're going to talk about leaders in game dev and how they can better relate to a Web3 world. Today, we have two very awesome guests. First is Susan Cummings, who comes with a combination of AAA game experience at companies like Rockstar and 2K and bleeding edge work more recently in AR, VR, and Web3. She's now the CEO of Petaverse. And Ryan Scott, a veteran senior design leader who's worked across many AAA titles at large companies, including Riot, ArenaNet, and Firaxis. Welcome both of you. I'm excited. We finally made it. We've been hatching this for months, and now we got two people that we feel really, really excited about to come talk to us about this because now that the crypto market is is gotten beaten up the last year, the silence is a little more palpable than lately, but like it was it was all anyone could talk about a year ago. And again, one of the things that struck me, like I mentioned earlier, was it wasn't like a very nice conversation most of the time. It felt like very kind of snooty and eye-rolly and frustrated and like you don't get it from both sides of the the aisle. And, and I'm curious, just to kick things off, what has that conversation been like for each of you to witness and participate in over the last couple of years? Yeah, it's been a it's been a train wreck, honestly, you know, <laughs> to the point that I I usually use avoid using the phrase NFT when I put posts on LinkedIn, you know, and things like that, because it, it triggers people. I think that Web3 as an industry really got off on the wrong foot. You know, and part of that's because it was crypto companies trying to make games without anybody on their team who's ever made a game. And it was largely, you know, a finance project. If you look at something like Axie Infinity, it was all about how can I earn earn money because that's what Web3 had been about to them was so it went from flipping JPEGs to being able to do something with those JPEGs in a way that you could earn money. And obviously, for anyone who's in the game industry, who loves the game industry, you know, who's been around it for a long time and is, and is protective of that industry, it's like, what the hell is this? We don't want this. Stay away. And so play to earn was awful, 
awful messaging. Mm-hmm. And it's all anyone wanted to talk about. You know, when, when we went out to raise money, people just wanted to know what our token model was, when token launch, and how is a staking mechanism going to work, and all this stuff that it was like, wait a second, we're a game company. And we were being asked, where's your smart contract engineers? We're like, we're a game company. Go find a middleware for that. And a lot of that's evolved. And we realized some of those were actually good questions. <laughs> but, and, you know, and, and, we, and, you know, and we've evolved because of that. But it was just terrible messaging. It was really, really terrible messaging. Ne- gaming has never, with the exception of esports and gambling, I guess, been about having to be, be paid to play something. That sucks. That's terrible. You know, monetization will come. Obviously, that's, it's, it's a business. But it was never what it should have been about. It was certainly never why I was here or my partner was here. We were talking about digital ownership. That's what we cared about. The fact that the provenance of having something always be yours and what that could unlock was why we were here. But it certainly wasn't why everybody else was here. And, you know, I watched game companies pivot their designs, adding like hats on their characters that were NFTs because Mm -hmm. it was a way of unlocking more money. I watched really talented game developers struggle to raise money because they couldn't launch something quickly enough. And so that, I think, also really soured people. You know, people building MMOs that take years to make and being said, well, what can you ship in six months? It's like, well, nothing. That was bad, too. There was this rush to get stuff out, just to get anything out, just to get an NFT out and use it like Kickstarter. So all of this was bad. And what I've watched, though, is I've watched that evolve over the course of the last year, year and a half. PDE has gone away. No one talks about Axie Infinity anymore. No one really talks about doing token launches as a, as a way of raising money for a company. And I think that, you know, people are really engaging in conversation about the real use case here and what we could do to, to, to pioneer and change things. Not everyone, but some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. No, that, that's awesome. I love that. Ryan, I know you've talked about this and, and actually I loved how you've always taken like this very questioning approach to this while like holding something underneath is like, hey, wait, what, what are we doing? Yeah. But um, yeah, where are you at? I try to make it more productive of a conversation, but I think for a lot of the reasons Susan's saying, there's not, hasn't been a hugely productive conversation to have from the AAA space. And I think that's because nobody's talking about anything that actually matters to anybody making or playing games yet. And, you know, one of the reasons I was excited to come on here is Susan's pitches, at least whether we agree or not, doesn't matter. It's at least like, hey, is there a value here that we can offer? And that might be the actually first time in two years I've heard that. And I (laughs) went out and I said something. I'm like, hey, look, I think this is all a scam. I think this is all a bunch of finance people who've only ever talked to other finance people for the rest of their lives. And that's why they think this is a good idea. But when you come at it with what's the player value of doing this, talk to me then. That's when I'm interested in hearing what you have to say. And for the first time, somebody saying, hey, that's something we have going on. So I think the reason the conversation hasn't been productive is because it's like, what productive conversation is there to be had about vapor in the previous conversations? If people are coming with a no value approach, Web3 is not new. It's the new clothes that people who don't care about adding value to products are wearing. and whether it's Web3, whether it's the shovelware free-to-play era of the early teens, any of these things, we're not interested in these people to begin with, like largely. We think they're harmful to players and the industry. So I think until that stops being there in free-to-play on the PC, did get out of there at some point, you know? And I think even mobile, when we're talking about, you know, the rise of the high-quality gotcha with something like Genshin or something like that, they've escaped this, this black hole that that started in through adding value, it turns out. 
Yeah. So, so, Web3 <laughs> becomes legitimate when Web3 adds value to players. There's something there that I think is really interesting, which is this idea that the financialization of games didn't start with the idea of Web3. Uh -huh. uh -huh. I think that's a misconception that I hear a lot where, and again, I think it's more real for players now with things like NFTs, like the, the gap between the executive somewhere signing a check and the person actually with fingers on the keyboard playing the game is now smaller than it's ever been. But the reality is, is to, you're, I think you're spot on, Ryan. We've been talking about this in the mobile space for some time, right? Like I think that there were a lot of justifiably asked questions in mobile when it came to monetization. And then we started to see it on PC with things like loot boxes and all this stuff, right? Where it was like you could from a player's perspective, it felt like more and more there were these like suits and smoke filled rooms who were making decisions about the games I was playing. And again, like you said, that goes back to like the early 2010s. That's not new, right? <laughs> like that's So I, I do feel like sometimes Web3 takes flack for being that sometimes where I think it's it's not really a fair assessment. This trend has been happening for a long time. The problem is I think folks in Web3 have avoided looking at the lessons of the past. Because yes, it is true. There's a, there's a ton to learn from mobile free-to-play. And largely those lessons are being ignored. To start with, you know, there's been this push to get a hardcore game out there. You know, the, the Fortnite or GTA or Web3, whatever. That's not happening anytime soon. And, but nobody wants it yet either. The, there is uh -huh. an audience there in Web3. Some of them, you know, play games. And if you look at mobile, you didn't start with Call of Duty being acceptable or Genshin or any of these things wouldn't have been acceptable back then. You had to start with casual games and Candy Crush and Bejeweled and Farmville and stuff. And and then people wanted something more. And then you got to tower defense games, you know, and mid-core and strategy games and stuff. And then eventually, eventually, many, many years later, it's acceptable to have Call of Duty on a phone because everyone's got a phone and, and we all play games on them. But nobody wants to learn from that lesson. And they all think that they're waiting for the next big shooter. And it's like, those things don't happen overnight. It takes iteration. It takes sequels. It takes, you know, a mature end. You know, all these things that we know within the game industry are the reason why the first one usually doesn't, doesn't work. And so I think that's a, a problem. And then you look at monetization. And there's already a troubling trend because there are Web 2 folks coming into Web 3 who come from the mobile free-to-play world, not the PC free-to-play world, who want to see this go down the same path. And they're already pushing that everything has to be free. They're already pushing all of the stuff that I'm trying to leave behind. So I'm having to be the one to set up and say, nothing's free. Anyone who lives through, who lives through mobile gaming knows that nothing's free. And if they don't get you on the front, they're <laughs> going to get you on the back. Yeah. And so, you know, so right now we've got people clamoring for things to be free. And then we have secondary royalties in question. So the two big business models are at odds with each other. And there are people um. asking for both. And so what does that mean? It means it's going to come down to advertising, subscription, selling your data, all the crap that, you know, is, is already there on our mobile phones. And so that's a big danger. And so I've really been trying to, to those who listen, explain what's happened in the past and why we, why we shouldn't be going. We can stay in Web 2 for that. Web 2 will continue to thrive if you want that. But to me, that's not what Web 3 is about. And so, uh -huh. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of lessons that need to be learned. And, and you get new people who don't come from games who are very quick to say, oh, that guy worked for Activision. He must have made Call of Duty. It's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. Like, oh, he made a game before. He must know. And it's like, well, no. Like, well, what did they make? And, and uh -huh. what could you say about that game? And what was the monetization like in that game and stuff? So uh -huh. you have to, they, don't, they don't dig in. And so there's a real danger that if 
more legitimate game designers don't come in, it's just not unlike free-to-play mobile gaming. It's going to go down bad paths and it turns into yeah. analytics, ARPU, you know, and data science and stuff. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not ready for Web3 to do that yet. <laughs> One of the things that you said earlier about digital ownership as the path to player value, I, I was listening to a tokenomics podcast, which is an offshoot of the Deconstructor of Fun mm. podcast, and I was really trying to like, okay, let me keep an open mind. Here are some people that are more excited about this. What are they saying? The thing that I'm struggling with is what something that Ryan and Aaron both mentioned, which is player value. Uh What is it that makes digital ownership or collecting something in a digital space where you can own things, which is, as I understand it, what Web3 is about, Uh how does this actually relate to player value? I'll give you the example that I used at Pocket Gamer. Yes. Nintendogs. Nintendogs is a really good example. Or anything of, of that ilk. Tamagotchi, you know, all these virtual pet things we've played over the years. You bought Nintendogs thinking that it was yours, and you bonded with it, and you played with it. It turns out it wasn't really yours. It belonged to Nintendo, to the, and it's confined. It's locked onto a DS, it's locked into a specific game, and it's locked into a specific art style. And then the DS became obsolete, and the art style became obsolete. So for the most part, no one's playing, I'm sure there's some people, most people aren't playing with Nintendogs anymore. The reason that we're passionate about Web3 and the player use case is the idea that that doesn't have to happen. That Web3 can be about three things. Owning your stuff, and all these things are required, right? Not just one. Owning your stuff doesn't mean anything if there's nothing you can do with it. Owning your stuff, having the flexibility to take it with you to other places where you want to go, regardless of the device, regardless of the blockchain, regardless of the art style. And composability. Okay, great. I own this thing. I can take it with me. How do I make something new out of it? Because in games, we know people love composability. Look at Roblox. Look at Minecraft. It's all about how do I make stuff? And it's also great from a value standpoint for a game developer because it means you don't have to make everything yourself. You can empower people to make mods and, and everything else. So going back to the Nintendo situation, if we can create a companion, an intelligent companion on one of the major engines, so Unity and Unreal or both even, And if we can define it as data, which is what Web3 is really good at, right, is data. And if we can be clever about the data, it doesn't all have to be Web3. Some things are better off being Web2. So a hybrid approach, a thoughtful approach to metadata, because you want it to be able to be changed. And that's something Web3 is not great at right now, is mutability, right? The whole point of the blockchain is it's permanent. So it's like, okay, that's great. And so you want to bond with something and have an inventory and have, uh, have its personality change over time and stuff. So you need mutability. And so that's a hybrid of Web 2 and Web 3 in our minds. And so we define the pecs those way. Then we say, right, doesn't match though. What if I wanted to bring it into Fortnite? The, the art style is not going to work. What if I wanted to bring it into a 2D anime game? Again, it's not going to work. What if I wanted to make it pixels? What if I, whatever. So we said, that's fine. Because it's data. It's a blueprint. Just like going into Dolly and putting a text prompt in and saying, you know, give me a picture of a cat who's striped, you know, with uh, orange eyes or whatever. You can get a million different versions depending on the art style. And we say, that's fine. You can use our blueprint the same way. Here's a blueprint. Here's a version that I can point to, but it's not the only version. You can point to lots of versions of it. And that means that it can go anywhere and look at home in the art style. And as those art styles become obsolete, the Nintendo's problem, it looks like it was made 15 years ago. Well, what about 50 years from now? Everything's really going to have moved on. Doesn't matter. Once again, it's flexible to art style. So we can change it. It can be the same blueprint and look however you want it to look. And you get to use our tech stack for free. So now you can say, okay, I want to use your model and your rig and your animations and I can make Stray. And I can make Stray in a different art style. 
using shaders, or I could go completely a different direction with it. You could do all of those things on Unity, and no one ever has to make pets again. And any game that wants to have a pet system to follow their characters around can just use our tech stack if they want to. But so that's part of it is so it's the reinterpretation. But then it's also imagine now if Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo could all agree on a universal save file so that regardless of where you wanted to play Call of Duty, it's still the same save. And that's obviously not going to happen. But in blockchain, it can because we can say it lives on a certain blockchain, call it Ethereum, which is, you know, we're, we're starting. If you want to use it on Solana or you want to use it on Polygon or wherever you might want to use it, we can give you permission. Same save file points to the same place. Same, the same data is being updated. So now in the future, if there's any blockchain, doesn't matter. We can give you permission to use it there. And then in the future, we turn all of this into a hyperstructure where it's run on smart contracts and has absolutely nothing to do with me anymore. That's what Web3 allows. That's what we're building. And it's so blindingly different from most of the stuff out there that people don't realize how much is possible if we stop screwing around with tokenomics and flipping and you know all the rest of this crap, that we can fundamentally change data, just databases. But what's cool about Web3 is those databases don't rely on me anymore. And if I want to move on and do something else like Nintendo did with their DS, doesn't matter. You still have your stuff. You have your assets. It's always yours. 200 years from now, it's still yours, you know, with the stuff to back it up. So anyways, that, that's the point. That's the player value. And that means that for game developers that want to get on board, even as something as simple as a pet, you can bring it anywhere you want to go. Or imagine a racing game where all you care about is the element that those pets align with. You can make a racing game now where the elemental, you know, effect that comes out of the car is fire or ice or whatever. Because of that one simple aspect of the metadata. So it doesn't even have to be an, you know, a pet game. It could be anything. It's just data. There's a persistence there, mm-hmm. which is, I think, right. a, a key part of that value proposition. The thing that you have bonded to or that you own is not tied to the context, the specific context of the game you're playing exactly. right now. Exactly. I want to kick it over to Ryan because I want to hear your thoughts on this too. Yeah. So I think a lot of this stuff is it finally passes the bar of talking about why anybody cares. There's kind of two uh, ropes. I feel the web three conversation continually hangs itself on, and we're bypassing one of those here, which is why does anybody who's not an investor or a token collector care? Great. Good job. Oh, Hey, Nintendogs, that doesn't go away. And this is a game about ownership that people have already engaged with in a model that we know fulfills some player motivation that has problems we can solve with some level of permanence. Cool. That makes tons of sense. Where I think the other problems are, though, is there's this, and I don't consider myself a very conservative game designer in a lot of ways. I tend to be, (laughs) want to try to, you know, break a lot of the traditional thinking when we're working on some of this stuff. But I do think the, the utopianism of, wow, once everybody just totally accepts that we're going to put content to all these games, it's going to be great. It's like, I do think we're probably going to see a world where there's going to be a new winner within the uh, UGC space of Minecraft, Roblox likes. That's the prize at the top of the mountain, I think, for Web3 that's legitimately at the top of that mountain. That's the one that you can draw a straight line to what it's allowing versus what the value proposition is versus the market, right? That makes tons of sense to me. But I think the people who are going to win are the people who create that platform first, that makes a lot of sense to want to generate that platform. And, you know, I think Roblox, thankfully, leaves a lot to be desired in terms of the user experience, how it treats its creators. Not doing child labor would probably be a pretty cool win for a new company. <laughs> uh, so I think there's a lot there that's, that makes sense. But past that, past that platform existing is like Epic has no incentivization for this. Microsoft has no incentivization for this. 
And like you said, they can't get their crap together to work with things they would have incentivization to work together on. Like Sony and Microsoft working together for a better user experience isn't possible because they're too busy competing. Like they're like, wait, you're coming in here with all this stuff that we're not going to monetize in any effective way or they get to have it too. That sucks. You know, you know, this is the company that just famously told Genshin Impact, like you could have an exclusive deal. We don't see what the value is. And that one was like literal writing on the wall for anybody paying an iota of intention. So I feel like we're eons away from that world. But at least we've passed that first bar. I'll take that as a win. Yeah. I'd say my my point would be, first of all, that I agree with you, especially in the Web3 world. These metaverses are nowhere as yet. And that shouldn't be surprising to anyone in video games. They're like a year old, most of them. And sandboxes take a long time to make. So they're empty, you know, and they're getting called out for it. Like Decentraland has, I don't know, like 300 people there a day. And so that's why I feel like the plumbing of the metaverse is the right approach figuring out right now how we can have these things that we can take with us because it isn't about a specific game. And I don't I don't think it ever will be. I don't think as a world we're ever going to agree on one game any more than we can on one politician or one religion or anything else. You know, the metaverse future is going to be lots and lots of places when it finally exists. And so I think that that's what's important is an approach to this, which is let's find the next Roblox and make them all powerful. Or there's the Web3 approach, which is do you know what? They're your toys. You take them where you want to. And the next time Roblox pisses you off by wiping out your account like they've done to kids lately for like no reason, you take your stuff and you go because it's yours. And so that's why, yeah, I do think that you're right. I do think that there's a place for these metaverses that are being built and there'll be awesome places to do it. But the point is that anybody can build stuff if given the tech stack and they know how to use Unity. And so anybody who wants to build these things can. It's less about the one space and it's more about like, it's like Lego. It's like giving someone a box of Lego and saying, go build. There's a sort of Robin Hood-esque, like we're going to distribute the power back to the people kind of. And, and I think that some of that mentality started with crypto. I love that idea. I love that idea that like if a game company pisses me off or doesn't serve me enough as a player, like I have recourse. I think the thing that I still consistently have trouble wrapping my head around, and Ben and I were talking about this yesterday, is value in an asset outside of the context where that asset matters. By the way, when I say I struggle with it, I mean, like, I just have difficulty wrapping my head around it. Actually, Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about the Nintendogs example is a, a relatively boxed example like the the experience is very much wrapped around that entity that is my Nintendo, And so it's actually mm-hmm. much easier for me to wrap my head around. But when people start saying, well, you can move your Call of Duty guns over to Valorant or whatever. Ah, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. I'm like, why would I do that? Like, I'm that, with you. Who, is there somebody who wants to do that? And this is where I just stumble up a lot because like when I view a game, I, so much of it is that holistic experience, right? Like I, I've never really ever thought, while it would be great to have my horse and Zelda moved over to this other game. And again, maybe these are very juvenile examples I'm giving. Sorry, that show. No, like they're a, just uh, the obvious examples, yeah. right? People say the same thing yeah. about, said the same thing a year and a half ago about taking your Call of Duty skin into, into Tomb Raider, that it would look stupid. Well, of course it would. But now when you think about it as data, I don't know the weapons ever work. Okay. There's, too, there's too much in that. Like, it doesn't have to work for everything. You know, every okay. aspect of a game doesn't have to be Web3. Okay, so you look at a lot of that and you're like, a lot of that doesn't make sense, actually. 
Totally, totally. Okay, things okay. will make sense for certain experiences. Like where, where yeah. it comes to like the the weapons, you know. Imagine you've got a, a cat, a cow. Call it a robot, right? What we're doing makes just as much sense to non-animalistic things. So you got a robot, and now you've collected a gun. That gun can get written into the metadata of what your pet owns, and so that means if you ever get rid of your pet, you get rid of the stuff with it. You know, this is like it's EQ all over again. Do you remember EverQuest and people selling their accounts on eBay? This is that to some extent. Like, and so what's really fascinating about that is these are dynamic NFTs. It's not just I buy a JPEG and I sell a JPEG and hopefully I made a quick buck. This is I was additive to it. I think of these things. I think of them as digital heirlooms, digital artifacts. I want my grandkids to inherit these things with everything that comes with it, with the memories that this pet has formed that have been written into its metadata with how its stats have changed with the inventory of things that it owns. But you could also detach those. Like one of the things that we're building is detachable NFTs. So now you can mix and match and say, I got a hat and I don't want the hat anymore, but I want to keep the pet or vice versa. You can detach those, make them as separate NFTs and now get rid of the one and keep the other. When Aaron and I first started talking about it, he, as I mentioned earlier, went very much in like the player value. What's the player value? Why does a player care? Ryan, I went somewhere more where you were going, which is, but why would a company opt into this? Let's say we'll just keep going with cats, right? Yeah. I create a cat that's data that could go anywhere yes. uh, if it makes sense inside of a game, right? Correct. And you're going to do work to integrate this into your game as a developer because players want that cat in this game. Correct. Put it this way. The most recent Xbox took four years to get to over 25 million install base. If Nintendogs were NFTs, that would be a 25 million person install base to appeal to. And I'm not saying that anyone, everyone's going to care. Epic will probably not care. Epic doesn't need to care about anything. But an indie developer will. Imagine wanting to make Stray. You could start with our animation system and you could grab some other assets on the Unity store and you could at least have a leg up to building an experience. Like, why should we have to keep reinventing the wheel? We're providing our model, our rig, blend shapes, animation systems, the AI systems we're building, the tech stack that it takes to add pets into a game. And so it's going to be really simple for an indie. So for you, then, the value prop for the developer is I actually save you time developing a system that you would already want in your game. Yes. And the only thing that you have to concede is that the pet system isn't just going to be part of your game. It's going to be part of a set of games that choose to do this. But it could look different in your game than anywhere else. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of the really exciting things about Web3 is, is the NFT license, right? And this is another place that we've been trying to thought lead because everyone says you own your NFT and usually you don't. Usually it turns out that you have some subset of rights. And so we're open sourcing a sole license agreement, which says that Every person who buys one of these NFTs is the only person with the commercial or marketing rights to that unique pet. That's powerful, right? That means you can do whatever you want with that thing. And I can't. I can't even use it in marketing, your unique pet. I've thought about this and I'm like, I look at Aaron and I and I look at like how we play games. And Ryan, I don't know, you may also fall into this category. And I'm like, and I, there's a part of me that just goes like, am I just not the target market for this? And is that why it's so hard for me to wrap my head around the value prop here? For the player, I wonder if I'm like, is one of my issues with this when I try to see the player value and I look at like, oh, I had a, I'm, let's say I really liked Boulder's Gate style escapes yeah. or whatever. And I have a pet that's moving around with me in that. And I'm like, well, then I go and I play The Witcher. Yeah. Right. And CD Projekt Red and Baldur's Gate have both integrated this system into their thing. And I'm like, oh, so now I have a pet and my pet shows up with me in that game. 
And is that like, is that a really cool thing for me? And I'm like, maybe for somebody that's really cool for me, I'm, I'm just like that. It feels not that it because it's a JPEG. Maybe it's got its personality and its mm -hmm. traits and its elements and all these things. I think you're thinking about a very specific use case, which is a AAA game. Let me give you another example. Okay. Imagine it's 10 years from now, probably a lot less than this. 10 years from now, you've got glasses on that you use instead of your smartphone now. Sometimes they're VR when you want it to be. Sometimes they're AR when you want it to be. And you have, I don't know, a dragon, dog, cat. I don't know what your, your thing would be. You've got this pet that follows around with you. And if you want to go jogging, the dog knows how fast you tend to run. And you can, you know, can go, go slap you. If you uh, are trying to get to a restaurant, your dog now walks you to the restaurant. And your friends had a cat and someone else has a, I don't know, an eagle. They can all play together in a, in a like a Philip Pullman-esque His Dark Materials sense. That's where it's all headed to. The tiniest use case is bringing it into League of Legends. The big use case is I have a, a daemon, if you will, if you read His Dark Materials, that's always with me and always always will be with me and has been with me for, you know, potentially decades when it comes to your, your grandkids. That's the point of all. One of the experiences that we're working on is a state engine, which will allow you, regardless of which of the experiences you're in, to fulfill the needs of your pet. So there's an app for it. But if it turns out you're out walking and you're on your smartwatch and, oh, crap, my pet's hungry, you can feed it there. It's a cloud pet. You know, it's maybe the best way to think about it. It's funny that, that you just gave me a use case where I was like, oh, that would be neat. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that which which was the running one. The, yeah. Like it paces me yeah. it, virtually while I'm while I if I go out for a run, it basically says like, I'm going to set a pace for you and you yeah. have to stay next to the like stay next to your pet. I don't know if I care anything about the dog other than the fact that it's pacing me. That's okay. But there are people, you know, who have allergies or small spaces, whether elderly, you know, who can't have a pet. And I would argue that the digital pet will be eventually just as viable as a physical pet. And, you know, it can run off in the other room and be playful because it's playful. It'll come to you at a certain time of day and tell you that it's hungry. Like, that's where all this is, is really headed. It's just going to take some time to get there. But I expect most people will have a digital companion in the future. Some of this makes sense. I think some of the, like non-game applications, I feel like it's almost like an aside thing. I think when people talk about Web3 games in a traditional gaming sense, it doesn't make sense. And I think when they talk a lot about marketplaces or UGC marketplaces, it also doesn't make a ton of sense because I feel like there's the third argument and I didn't bring this up the first time because I kind of forgot to think about it, but it was like, we can already do that argument. Yeah. It's like uh, many of the experiences we speak about and that players can do, you know, I think my favorite one was the old weapons one, which is a straw man anyway, because they're like, what if you could like collect and sell these? Like, have you played Counter-Strike? There's like literally an entire gun economy there. Well, so what if you get banned from Counter-Strike? Then I don't want them. I shouldn't have got banned. It's fine. You know, it's like this gun has no value outside of the context, like what Aaron was saying. You like, there's kind of an enclosure to this value. And that if you escape this enclosure with the value, it's like driving a car off the lot, except worse. It's like, oh, now the car just stops working. You're like, oh, okay. I think there's a... The one I think about for a lot of the experiences that where players can do these kinds of things is VR chat, but they can do it for free, open source, like, and share their creativity. You know, same with like, I think the Roblox space and things like this. Players are doing this and maybe this is where I'm 44 and not 14. Maybe this is the real difference. And that's the part I'm open-minded to is that I'm getting to be an old man on the market. And this is a part that I have a blind spot to. But I haven't heard contrary information from the audience. And that information to me should come from the audience. So like of, hey, I really wish I could do this. The Roblox banned me and I wish I still had my stuff. I keep losing my stuff. I think they're mad that they can't play Roblox anymore, that they can't 
be parts of these experiences. I'm, I think they're mad that their VR chat account doesn't work or whatever that is. Those things, the lack of access to not the stuff, but the space, not the lack of access to the content, but the experience feels like the pain that players are suffering here. That's legitimate. And, you know, sometimes maybe it's okay. They feel that pain for getting, you're sitting there spamming the N word in Roblox. Yeah, get banned. That's probably good to not fix. (laughs) So I think there's a several, there's several cases of like each value proposition, I think sometimes makes some sense. And again, I think your original pitch of like, what if I had a digital companion that had longevity and companion implies ownership native. There's a lot of times where I think ownership is like, well, you can own it. And it's like, yeah, but who cares? There's a lot of stuff I can own that I don't want to own. I can own a U-Haul truck and I don't want to own a U-Haul truck either, <laughs> you know? And a lot of the stuff in games is a lot similar to that. I can rent a U-Haul truck and that's fine. I'll do that when I need one. So I think that one example you had, I think, does have some compelling, like, hey, I see where that's going. But then the extensibility really gets lost on me because I feel those two things are at odds. The extensibility is the opposite use case of that kind of a full context space of ownership, of curation, of like sitting there and spending time with a thing that's cool and like meaningful to you. The sensibility of that and the che- and the mutability of that then gets lost when that thing loses that context. Like having it in Baldur's Gate is extremely uncanny valley for, you know, we're talking probably 10 plus, 20 plus years until that gets so good that it's not weird. Or you were, you know, maybe kids now can get on board with it because it's always been there. But I think that's a long road still at best. Well, I would say that a couple of things. I think that your use case example of Roblox is a hard one to talk about because that is confined within Roblox. And I totally agree with you. What's the point of getting this stuff out of Roblox? It's, I mean, other than the fact that, look, I've got a 14-year-old who spent too much money on Fortnite. I wish he could resell this stuff. I don't understand why he can't. <laughs> I, I do understand why he can't. Epic doesn't want that, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but when you're using Roblox as an example, if you got banned from it, there is no place else to take your stuff. And so what uh-huh. I'm proposing is the idea that assets aren't locked to specific experiences. They're usable in lots of them. As far as pets go, look at World of Warcraft. I've played a ton of World of Warcraft. I've probably had 50 different pets. I guarantee you there's a way of making a cat look appropriate within World of Warcraft. I'm pretty sure I had one. So it just means thinking a bit differently about art style. This was the end of part one on Web3 and Game Dev with Building Better Games. We talked a lot about player value. Um, What does it mean for Web3 to meaningfully contribute to the player experience and also be something that's viable for companies to interact with? In part two, we're gonna dive into what it means for you as a leader in game dev to relate to Web3. If you wanna get one practical monthly tip to help you lead game teams, then sign up for our newsletter now so you and your team can level up. All you have to do is click the newsletter link in the show notes or go to buildingbettergames.gg. Thanks for listening.